Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and open to the book of Colossians. And we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 uh, together this morning as we talk about uh, this uh, simple truth, how Christ transforms relationships. One of my favorite artists is a man named Makoto Fujimura, and his paintings, um, his style of painting is very unusual. He, he will put layers of paint on a canvas in such a way that once it's finished, if he hangs it on a wall, if the light is just right coming in from a window, as the rays of sunlight change across the day and cast itself on the painting over the course of hours, every time you look at the painting, it looks like a brand new painting. Just taking that painting and casting it in a different light really reframes the way that you view the painting. And the gospel is that exact same way. It reshapes and reframes everything in our lives. It casts every aspect of our life in a different light so that we view it in a new way. Colossians chapter 3 is all about how the gospel changes every aspect of our life, how it casts it in a different light. And so it changes our inner life. It changes the way we relate with others. Here in Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through chapter 4 and verse 1, we're going to see how the gospel sheds its light on the closest relationships that we have in our life, those relationships that we have at home. Paul is going to talk about three different sets of relationships in these verses, the relationship between wives and husbands, the relationship between children and parents, and then what would have been a household relationship in the ancient world, today we would say it's a work relationship, he addresses slaves and masters. And I understand that we, we are in a different culture in a different time, but there's a point of application even in this for our work relationships that are quite close as well. So let me just start by saying this morning that if the gospel is going to make a difference in our lives, it will make a difference first at home. Amen? If Christ is going to be the center of our life, it's going to start in the closest circle of relationships that I have. It really does begin at home. That's why we're emphasizing the home front initiative in 2023, because we want you to put Christ at the center beginning at home. We want Christ to be the center of our marriages. We want Christ to be the center of our parenting. We want Christ to be the center of our work life. We want Christ to be the center beginning at that closest circle of relationships that we have. I tell seminary students all the time that what matters in your ministry the most is not that you can preach great sermons or that you're a great leader. What matters most is your character What matters most is who you are when no one but God is looking. What matters most is who you are at home, who you are with your wife, who you are with your children. If Jesus is the cosmic Lord of creation, and Colossians chapter 1 tells us He is, then He must be the Lord of my private life and the Lord of my own home and the Lord of my closest relationships. And listen to me very, very clearly this morning. Commitment to the Lordship of Jesus begins at home. It doesn't matter if you're living it out in public, if you're not living it out in private. It doesn't matter if I live a certain way publicly, if I'm not consistent personally. The Lordship of Christ is not just a a commitment I make in the context of 
of the public square or in the context of church life, commitment to the lordship of Jesus begins with my marriage. It begins with my parenting. It means Jesus gets to be Lord over my home. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. I just want to say right up here at the very front, I recognize at the beginning of a new year, it may just be that today you need a reset in your marriage and in your parenting in your home. It may be that today is a day where you just say, you know what, we've kind of gotten off on the wrong foot at home and we want to, we want to hit the restart button so before we finish today, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do just that. I'm going to call us to prayer as families today uh, before we leave this place. And so I want you to be thinking about that. But I want us to look at the text and, and see what Paul has to say about Christ-centered marriage, Christ-centered parenting, and Christ-centered work. So these three sets of relationships. So let's look at, at, first of all, at what Paul says about Christ-centered marriage. Marriage, God's Way And it's a very big contrast between marriage the world's way. Look at Colossians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 18 and 19. Some words that may sound foreign to modern ears, but I want you to hear and think about what God's Word has to say, and I want to paint a picture for you of Christ-centered marriage. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. All right, there it is. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. A word to wives, submit to your husbands. That's like a four-letter word in our day and time, isn't it? It's an uncomfortable word to say. It's an uncomfortable word to hear. I promise you it's an uncomfortable word to preach about. And husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter toward them. Well, what is, what is this talking about? There's a way of reading those couple of verses and viewing it in one particular light. Some people read these verses and they say, ah, that, that, uh, what a patriarchal backwards way of doing life. Look at the oppressive image that uh, scripture portrays of the home. And there's a way of viewing this passage as sort of like the husband gets to be the dictator and the wife is a doormat. Husbands, you're the king, you're the tyrant. Wives, submit to the oppression of your husband. But I actually want you to, to see this text in a different light because that is not at all what the Bible teaches. That is not at all what these verses are communicated. I want you to see a picture of Christ-centered marriage. What does it mean to submit to a husband? What does it mean to love your wife? Well, let me just start by talking about what Paul is saying here to husbands. I actually wanna begin with verse 19 and say a word to husbands because I think it's gonna help us understand what verse 18 is about. The husband is called to love his wife. That's a positive word. And then a, a kind of a negative uh, instruction. And don't be bitter towards them. Okay, so positive and a negative instruction. Love and don't be bitter. To love. He, you know, the Greek New Testament has a lot of different words for love. We, we have one English word for love. I love my dog. I love bluebell ice cream. I love my wife. One word means three different things right there. Greek New Testament has a bunch of different words but Paul uses a particular word here. He doesn't use the word for sort of erotic love. He doesn't use the word for friendship love. He uses agape love. And that's a very particular kind of love that Christian husbands are called to display for their wives. If you're a Christian husband, you are called to love your wife 
like Christ loved the church. That is agape love. It is a selfless, self-giving kind of love. It is a love that puts the needs of your wife front and center. It's a love that seeks to put your wife first. Curtis Vaughn says about this word, he says, it means unceasing care and loving service for the wife's entire well-being, okay? So Christian husbands, this is what we're called to do in the home, in our marriage. We are called to express unceasing care and loving service for our wife's entire well-being. To love like this really means to be a servant leader. It means to love on our knees. It means to love with a towel and a basin. It means to love with a servant's heart. That's what it means to be a a Christian husband. That's the positive instruction. But then he says, and don't be bitter toward them. Don't be bitter toward them. That means don't be harsh with your wives. Don't be irritable with your wives. Don't be mean to your wives. That's ways of translating that word. It it has the sense of of, um, being gentle and kind and patient with your wife. That's how we're called to lead in the home, men. We are called to to lead not as dictators, not as tyrants, but as servant leaders who are not ever harsh with our wife, who seek to put their needs first, who are expressing unceasing care, loving service. We care for our wife's entire well-being. The Apostle Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. Look at what God's Word has to say here. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7 says, Husbands, in the same way, live with your wives. Let's say it together, men. In an understanding way as with a weaker partner. Now, let me just pause right there. You can write out in the margins of your Bible that Pastor Andrew says, that's a terrible translation. He said, what what does weaker partner mean? You know, like some of you ladies who do CrossFit and you're like, I can bench more than my husband. Uh, What is this? I'm not a weaker partner. Okay, this is not, this is not talking about physical strength or strength of character. The word that Peter uses here is very particular. It has the idea of treating your wife like a precious vessel, like something that is breakable, like something, think about, uh, uh, you know, maybe grandma, go to grandma's house and there's this vase that's like made of some kind of precious material. It's very fragile. It's very breakable. And so you, you put it in a place of honor, right? Your grandma puts it in like a glass case on display. It's like the fine china. That's what Peter is saying. Peter's saying, Christian husbands, you are to treat your wife like the fine china, like a precious vessel, showing them, let's say this together, showing them honor, showing them honor. That means that chauvinism has no place in the Christian life. We are called as Christian husbands to view our wives and treat them with honor, look, as co-heirs of the grace of life. Look at the dignity that is bestowed on women in this passage. Look at the dignity with which you should treat your wife. She is a co-heir of God's grace. We know from Genesis chapter one, she bears the image of God. God creates man and woman in his image, male and female. He created them in his image. So she's an image bearer of God. She's a co-heir of the grace of life. And what your wife deserves is to be treated with honor as a precious vessel. And notice the warning in Peter, so that your prayers 
will not be hindered. Guys, that's quite a statement. Peter is saying, if you mistreat your wife, go ahead and expect to be ignored by God. If you treat your wife as anything less than a co-heir of the grace of God, if you treat her with anything less than honor, then don't expect for God to listen to you when you pray. Treat her with honor. Live with her in an understanding way. Treat her as someone precious who is a co-heir of the grace of Christ so that your prayers won't be hindered. That's what Paul means in Colossians chapter 3 when he says, love and do not be harsh. What a different picture from the world's chauvinistic way of treating women in this day and time. In the age of Me Too and Church Too, where women are mistreated and abused and treated less than and treated as objects of of men's desires. What a contrasting picture the Bible paints here. Women instead are image bearers of God, co-heirs of the grace of life to be treated with honor and dignity and respect, to be loved in a selfless, self-giving kind of servant-hearted way, not ever to be treated in a bitter or irritable or harsh kind of manner. That's what husbands are called to do in the home. Now, I started with husbands. Let me, let me say a word now about verse 18, because what Paul is saying in verse 18 about submission He is not saying here, and I hope you understand now because of verse 19, he is not saying that you are to submit to a dictator. He's not giving men the permission to do whatever they want to do in the home and to be a dictator or a tyrant and the woman just has to be a a doormat. He's saying the picture of marriage, God's way, is that a husband will love his wife like Christ loves the church and the wife will respond by following his loving leadership. That's what it means to submit. It just means that you follow the loving leadership of a godly and Christ-like husband who's seeking to serve you well. And ladies, true or false, if a husband loves you this kind of biblical way, is that easy or hard to follow? I asked you true or false, didn't I? I asked the question the wrong way. Like, true? Guys, listen, if you will love your wife this kind of way, it makes it a whole lot easier for her to follow your leadership. Amen, ladies? If a husband will love you in this kind of servant-hearted way, it's easy to follow. Listen, it is, in any aspect of our life, it is easy to follow a servant-hearted leader. And that's especially true in the home. And so Paul calls wives just simply to follow the leadership of a godly, loving, servant-hearted husband. Now, it's interesting, the word submit, I think we tend, in our modern time, we tend to think of that as kind of like a, a, a word of oppression. It's really not. The word submit in the Greek language is a, is a word that described troop formation in battle. It has the idea of something being well-ordered, well-ordered. And so that tells us something very interesting and very true about marriage God's way, that there is, in God's design, there is an order in the home. Now, our culture says the opposite. The culture says... There's no order in the home, that men can be women, women can be men, men can be women who want to be men, women can be men who want to be women, all these different things. It's not order, it's chaos. The Bible, though, pictures order. The Bible says that God creates men and women differently. Now, that doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Men and women are equal in worth, 
value, and dignity, but they are different, and those differences are differences to celebrate, not to ignore. God has created a different role for husband and wife in the home. Just like on a baseball team, right? You have all the players on a baseball team. There's not one that is more important than the other. They're all equally important, but they play different positions on the field. And the husband and the wife are just like that. And the order that God has called the home to work in is for husbands to lovingly and in a godly way lead their families. Amen? And for wives to follow the loving leadership of their husband. It does not mean... It does not mean that the wife must follow the husband into sin. It does not mean that a a wife must follow the husband into servitude. It certainly does not mean that a wife has to submit to abusive behavior. In fact, the Bible tells us there are times when you have to refuse. Acts chapter 5 and verse 29 says we are to obey God rather than man. And so there are times in love that a wife must simply say no. But what this does mean is that a husband who loves his wife in this kind of way and cares for her, called to lead her spiritually, that a wife is called to lovingly follow the spiritual leadership of her husband. Let me just say a word to you men for a second. God, the order that God has called you to have in the home is for you to be the spiritual leader in your family. God has called you to take up the mantle of leading your wife and children to godliness. And, And our culture will tell you that you cannot do it and that you shouldn't do it. And if you just watch television shows, it's the husband and the father who is always the the brunt of the jokes, who is minimized. The, The father is always the dope in the show. But God has given you a high and holy calling, and that is to lead not like a dictator, not like a tyrant, not like the ways of this world, but to lead in love, to lead on your knees, to lead as a servant and take up the mantle of spiritual leadership in your home. And then ladies, as your husbands are trying to take those steps to lead you and to lead your children, you are called to follow his leadership. That is God's order for the home. And the picture here is not of dictator and doormat. The picture here is of mutual respect, honor, love, and deference. The picture here is Romans chapter 12 and verse 10. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Take the lead in honoring one another. That's the picture of Christian marriage. How about Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, which says, don't look out for your own interests only, but also for the interests of others. That's what husbands and wives are called to do together. I learned how to drive in the city of Houston, which is a terrible place to learn how to drive. If you don't learn how to drive defensively, you learn how to drive aggressively if you're going to survive. And you, expect, you learn how to drive fast. You learn how to cut people off with excellence. And never use a blinker, okay? A blinker is just an invitation to never be able to get into the next lane. And so you're always, you know, you're always speeding ahead. It's like you're in a race car. Who can get there first? Who can cut? The, the most expensive speeding ticket I've ever had in my life was in the city of Houston. I was going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit. I saw the police officer there and I thought, oh, he saw me. So maybe if I can just slip into traffic, he'll lose me in the crowd. So then I got unsafe lane change and failure to use a blinker. <clears throat> That's aggressive driving in Houston. But then Amy and I, after we got married, I pastored a first full-time church out in the country outside of Paris, Texas, in a little community called Direct, Texas. There's no stoplight. It's not a town. It's unincorporated. There are more cows than people. 
And they drive very differently in direct Texas than they do in Houston, Texas. In Houston, you're just trying to run people over in order to get to your destination. Isn't that right, Pastor Andy? You've, you've pastored there. You know that's true. But in the country, they are not trying to get anywhere fast. They're just happy to sort of mosey. You know what I'm saying? Google that word mosey, okay? <clears throat> and if you're driving down a two-lane road and there's a car on the other side, as you come closer, they will pull into the edge of the street to give you room. And if you zoom up on their bumper, like certain people used to do, they will, they'll move over to allow you to pass and they'll even wave at you as you go. It's an amazing thing. I felt awful the first time I raced around somebody to get to church and I speed into the parking lot and here comes a church member, you know, that I'd cut off in traffic. And <clears throat> you see, marriage the world's way both the husband and the wife are just constantly trying to run over each other. But marriage with Christ at the center is where you have a big yield sign. And there's just an eagerness to yield toward one another. The husband to the wife and the wife to the husband. That's the picture of Christian marriage. When Christ is Lord, we're called to have a home where love and deference are the rule. Amen? All right, so let's talk about the second set of relationships. We've talked about Christ-centered marriage, and how about Christ-centered parenting? Well, look at chapter 3 and verses 20 and 21. Paul begins to speak to children and parents. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this, what, pleases the Lord. The fathers, you could read here, fathers and mothers, parents, do not exasperate your children <clears throat> so that they won't become discouraged. So here's the picture he's portraying, a word to children and a word to parents, right? A word to children, he says, children, your responsibility in a Christ-centered home is to, is to obey your parents. Now, to obey doesn't simply mean to just do what you're told. Okay, sometimes we minimize obedience to that idea of just doing what I'm told. It actually, the word literally means to listen under, to listen under. It has the idea of recognizing the authority of your parents and honoring them. It, 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 you could almost translate this, the idea of like hearing with honor, Hearing with honor. And boy, doesn't that contrast with the way our culture casts the light of, into parenting and, and uh, parenting and childrening, child, children, childhooding? I don't know what the word is there. It's, it, there's a word out there. I'm just not finding it right now. Um, you know, in our culture, <clears throat> parents have no authority. Children are like little tyrants ruling the roost. They call the shots. They have all the rights. Parents have no rights. In fact, there's kind of some social experimentation happening in our culture where parents, uh, you have no rights. Children can do things without getting your permission. They can do things without even notifying you. That is not God's design. God's design is that parents are a gift to their children as much as children are a gift to their parents. And that God has entrusted authority to parents to discipline and just as importantly, listen, to disciple. The reason that God entrusts children to us is not just to raise them to get good grades and play all the sports and, and go play college ball and to get a good job. God has entrusted our children to us not only to, to discipline, but also to disciple. And the first sort of first line of discipleship that happens in the church actually happens in the home with parents and their children. And so children are called to honor their parents, to hear them with honor, to obey, to recognize their parents' authority and to obey them. 
And then parents are not to abuse that authority. Notice what Paul says to parents right here. He says, parents, don't exasperate your children so that they become disheartened or discouraged. Paul is giving instruction here to parents in the manner in which they exercise that discipline and that discipleship. It's easy for parents to sometimes kind of be overbearing on their parents, being helicopter parents or whatever, and exasperating them and disheartening them and discouraging them. And Paul says to parents, be gentle, be kind. Don't exasperate your kids. Don't discourage your kids. Shepherd your kids' hearts. Listen, shepherd your kids' hearts in a manner in which they will be pushed towards Jesus instead of pushed away from Jesus. I want to father my kids in a manner that they see the gospel at home that they see the love of God our Father displayed through a very broken, imperfect human father. But as they watch their dad's life, I want my life to be a beacon that points them to the perfect fatherhood of God, where they, through my life and through my parenting and through my tone of voice and through my attitude and through my actions, that they are encouraged, not discouraged, that they are pushed towards Christ rather than pushed away from Christ, that there is discipline, but there's also discipleship. Amen? Not exasperating, not discouraging, but lovingly discipling our kids and then our kids responding to that in an honoring obedience. That is parenting God's way. But now there's one final set of relationships that I want you to see here in the text, and that is not just Christ-centered marriage and Christ-centered parenting, but, but I want to think about Christ-centered work. Because Paul s- starts to speak about a third set of relationships, and in the ancient world, the relationship between slave and master actually would be a household relationship. So he's actually addressing three kinds of household relationships. In our culture, in East Texas, um, we're gonna apply this to our work, right? There's not a one-to-one comparison here uh, between what's happening in the text and what's happening in our lives. But I do think that we can apply this to the area of our work. If you work for someone or someone works for you, there are principles in these texts that help us to understand how to do that with Christ at the center, what it looks like for Christ to transform our relationships at work. And so let's look into the text and see what Paul has to say. Paul begins to speak to, to slaves, Christian slaves. And, and by the way, just keep in mind, this is like a bond servant in the ancient world, right? This is a very different institution from sort of like American chattel slavery. This would be half the Roman population would have been slaves. Most of those slave master relationships were entered into voluntarily as a bond servant in order to pay off debt or to even improve your social status and society, something like that. And there could certainly be abuses in those relationships, and Paul's going to give some instruction to protect against some of that, but this is a very different institution from, from what comes to most of our minds when we think about slavery. So I want you to think about this in the context of the ancient world, okay? So look what he says in verse 22. He says, slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched. Um, older translations say, don't do this with eye service as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, do your work thoroughly. Do your work thoroughly. If you're a Christian who has a job, do your work thoroughly. Don't just do it while being watched. All of you have been in gym class where you're supposed to be doing push-ups and you're kind of slacking off until the gym teacher walks by and then you're like very diligent, right, with your push-ups and then he walks by and it's like you're slacking off again. Some of you know what it's like to work with people like that. Don't say amen here. Um, 
But you know what it's like when somebody like works real hard when the boss walks by and then, you know, it's back to Facebook or whatever on their their computer. Paul says, for a Christian at work, you should not work that way. You should do your work thoroughly, not just when you're being watched, not just to please people, but do it with all your heart. And then look at verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, do it from the heart. He reiterates that idea, a wholeheartedness in your work as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. So he's saying here, not just do your work thoroughly. Now he's saying, do your work sincerely, sincerely. Don't just do your work while you're being watched. Don't do your work half-heartedly. Do your work with all your heart. If you're a Christian, this is your responsibility in your work relationships to be the one person maybe at your work who does your work with all of your heart. Not half-heartedly. You do it with sincerity. And Paul says, knowing that you'll receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. If you do your work with all of your heart, listen, you may not get that pay raise that you're hoping to get, but if you work wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, there's an inheritance that will come to you from the Lord. And by the way, think about this again in the ancient world where by Roman law, no slave could have an inheritance. But Paul says, ah, oh, but if you work with all your heart as unto the Lord, the Lord has an inheritance for you. There's a word of application for us in our work relationships. Do your work thoroughly, but do your work sincerely with all of your heart. And then third, look at verses 24 and 25. Do your work as a matter of worship. Look what he says, verse 24. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he's done, and there is no favoritism. What he's saying is, when you do your work, realize that if you serve a human master, you may not like that boss, you may not like your supervisor, but actually, when you go to work, you are actually working to serve the Lord Jesus. And so Paul is saying, do your work thoroughly, do your work sincerely. He's also saying, do your work as a matter of worship. If you go to school and you're in a class that you hate, for me, that was a doctoral statistics class. Whoa, hate math. Doctoral statistics class, just awful. Maybe you're in a class you just don't like. Approach your schoolwork as a matter of worship. Bring to your schoolwork that kind of diligence. If you're given an assignment at work, you just, it's really draining, you don't want to do it, do it as a matter of worship to the Lord. Serve the Lord Jesus when you serve in your work. That's what Paul is saying. You may serve a human master, but you actually have a master in heaven. So whatever you do in terms of your vocation and your work and your job, however you happen to draw a paycheck, realize it matters because you're serving the Lord with this. What he's saying is that your job, the job you do matters if you do it for the Lord. If you build houses... Build them for the Lord. If you bust tables, bust that table for the Lord. If you prosecute cases in a courtroom, prosecute those cases for the Lord. If you sweep floors, sweep that floor for the glory of God. Remember chapter 3 and verse 17 where Paul says, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all, what? In the name of the Lord Jesus. Here Paul is saying, if you're working, work for Jesus. Make your work a matter of worship. That's 
how we should live out a Christ-centered life in our work. And then he gives a word to masters in chapter 4 and verse 1. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly. Now, that would be a revolutionary kind of statement in the first century. He's saying, masters, your slaves have rights and you have responsibilities. You are to treat them just, justly and fairly. Don't forget chapter 3 and verse 25. The wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done and God shows no favorites. So be careful how you supervise people. This is a, a good word of comfort for a slave who might have been treated unjustly and it's a good word of warning to a master who might have treated that slave unjustly. The Lord will pay back whatever wrong has been done and he shows no favorites between slave or master He shows no favorites. Uh, There is an equality there in Christ. So deal with your slaves justly and fairly. Why? Because you know that you too have a master in heaven. What a word. That's a word to, in the first century, to a a master. Remember, you're going to give an account for how you treat people. But I think as a way of application for us today, I would say if people work for you, remember, you work for Jesus. And if People give an account to you in work. You will give an account to Jesus for how you treat those people who work for you. So treat them honestly, justly, fairly. Remember, you have a master in heaven. So the word here to slaves is serve like you're serving Jesus. And the word to masters is remember, you have a master too. Now that's quite an upside down kind of way of looking at work relationships, isn't it? This is different than the way of the world. The way of Christ is vastly different. When Christ is Lord, we're called at work to have a life where we honor the Lord and one another in our work, whether you are a, someone who works for someone or someone who has people who works for them. That's how Christ transforms our work relationships. So let me just, let me just draw three conclusions about this as we think about how Christ transforms relationships. I want you to think about whether it's in marriage, it's parenting, or in work, These verses teach us three things. One, that Christian relationships have both rights and responsibilities. Rights and responsibilities. Think about how transformative these verses would have been in the first century. Because in the ancient world, wives had no rights. Children had no rights. Slaves had no rights. William Barclay says this about women in the ancient world. Listen to this. He says, in the ancient world, a woman was a thing. She was the possession of her husband, just as much as his house or his flocks or his material goods were. She had no legal right, whatever. A husband could divorce his wife for any reason. A wife had no rights, whatever, in the initiation of divorce. From her, there was demanded a complete servitude and chastity, but her husband could go out as much as he chose and could enter into as many relationships outside marriage as he liked and incur no stigma. Both under Jewish and under Greek laws and customs, all the privileges belonged to the husband and all the duties belonged to the wife. Now think about how transformative Colossians chapter 3 would be, where there are now Not just that the husband enjoys all of the rights and the woman is saddled with all of the responsibilities. In Christian marriage, now there are rights and responsibilities for both husband and wife. Same thing for marriage and parenting. Same things for slaves and masters. There are rights and protections 
for women, for children, for slaves, and there are responsibilities for everyone in those relationships as well. And so this protects, for instance, against abusive husbands and mean wives. Because the husbands are called to love and not be harsh with their wives, and the wives are called to follow the leadership of their husbands. This protects against parents who are taskmasters or children who are tyrants. Because children are called to obey their parents and parents are called not to exasperate their children. Uh, this, is, this calls for uh, a protection against lazy employees who do their work half-heartedly only when the boss is around and they just view it as a job. Instead, they are called to do it with all their heart, all the time for the Lord. But it also protects against unfair employers who treat their employees dishonestly and unjustly and unfairly. So there are rights and responsibilities. There are protections and duties as we are called to love, honor, respect, serve, and put others first in every relationship that God has entrusted to us. Amen? Here's a second way that Christ transforms relationships. Christian relationships we find are for the Lord, not just for us. Now, see, we tend to make every human relationship in our life all about us. So in marriage, for instance, I hear this all the time in premarital counseling. I'll ask a, uh, you know, engaged couple, hey, why are you getting married? And nine out of ten, ten times I'll hear some variation of this answer. Because she makes me happy. Or he makes me happy. And I think that's great for week one. What about when you get back from the honeymoon? Then you're, maybe you're not happy. Like there are going to be wonderful times of happiness in your marriage. You should seek to make your spouse happy, but there are not always going to be, there's not always going to be happiness in marriage. Sometimes our marriages are hard. Can I get a witness? And if we're only in it for us and our happiness, then when we're not happy anymore, we don't have a reason to stay faithful. But now if our relationships are for the Lord and not just for us, then maybe my marriage, for instance, is not primarily about my happiness, but my holiness. And now the aim is not just what I get out of it, but how can I use this relationship to honor the Lord? How is the Lord using this relationship to shape me into greater Christ-likeness? I want you just to notice in the text all the references to the Lord, right? Just look quickly. Verse 18, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting. What does it say there? In the Lord. Look at verse 20. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. Uh, look down at verse 22. Slaves, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, verse 23, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Verse 24, uh, you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1, masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly because you know that you too have a master in heaven. You see, what Paul is saying is the way that Christ transforms our relationships is it's not just about us. It's about the Lord. My marriage is not about my happiness. My marriage is a gift of sanctification that God has entrusted to me to make me look more like Jesus and help me help my wife look more like Jesus. And that reciprocal sanctification relationship means that even when our marriage goes through difficult days, we still have a reason for being married because it's not my happiness, it's my holiness. And maybe the way that God is going to make me most holy is actually through difficulty in my marriage. And I, I reorient now this marriage, my kids, my work, 
is not primarily about me. It's for the Lord. And then the third and final way that Christ transforms relationships is, is this. Christ, Christian relationships are not about self-serving, but self-giving. Not self-serving, but self-giving. So the husband doesn't come into the marriage and say, well, how can my wife serve and meet my needs? He instead says, how can I love and serve my wife like Christ loves and serves the church? The wife doesn't come into the marriage saying, oh, great, I got a husband. Now he can meet all of my needs. The wife comes into the marriage and says, how can I love and serve and meet the needs of my, right? How can we have this mutual honor and respect and deference and love and care? In our work, it's not just about how can I squeeze everything selfishly out of this job for me, but how can I give How can I contribute? How can I make a difference? How can I pour out, right? So it's not about what I call relational greed, but instead relational generosity. It's not about what I'm getting. It's not about kind of a me-centered life. How can I be served? What can I get? It's how can I serve others? What can I give? And, And relational generosity, listen, it's it's the gasoline that fuels the relational car. When we say it's, this relationship is not primarily about me, it's, it's about the Lord, and it's not primarily about what I get, but what I can give. Not about self-serving. It's about generosity in my relationships. And let, let's just admit it. That's hard. It's hard to come into, whether it's a marriage relationship or a parenting relationship or a work relationship, it is hard to live this kind of picture of a life. But here's some really good news. God gives us his grace for the journey. Amen? God gives us grace for the journey. He gives us grace in our marriages. I'm so thankful for that. Because the reality is we will not always live up to God's design. Whether it's in marriage or parenting or work. And the good news of the gospel is that there is grace even in our failure. Even when you fail to live up to what the Bible calls you to, to do, even when you fail to live up to your own standards, there's grace in the midst of failure. And there's grace that gives you what you need for the journey. I'm so thankful that God doesn't just take us and throw us into the deep end of the pool and say, good luck. He's with us. He empowers us. He gives us grace for what we need. <clears throat> we sing this song, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. That that tells us that God's presence is with us to give us encouragement when we're discouraged and guidance when we have no idea what to do. That's a good word because there are times in my marriage when I don't know what to do. There are times in my parenting where I just want to kill one of my kids. (laughs) Let me back that up. edit, Edit that out. You know what I'm saying? Am I the only one? It's just hard moments. That's what I'm trying to communicate here. And it's like, what, what, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle this problem or this issue or this challenge. His own dear presence to cheer and to guide. He's with us. And there's grace for the journey. I had the opportunity to hunt an alligator a year and a half ago, which is an interesting experience. I went with a group of Baptist pastors, which is not the group you want to go with when you're hunting something that can hunt you back. 
you know, an apex predator. I don't want preacher friends. I want the most redneck looking person I can find. (laughs) Now, if you take me and my 10 preacher friends, we would go on this hunting trip and just kind of put us out on the lake and say, you know, good luck. Go kill an alligator. You know what's going to happen? We're going to get eaten. That's going to that's be what happens. We're going to die if we're out there on our own. But here's what happened with our hunt. We had a guide. And this guide was everything that you would hope an alligator guide would be. Gator Bob. All right, and Gator Bob looked and smelled and chewed and talked like everything you'd hope Gator Bob would, would do. Gator Bob was right there the whole time. He's the one guiding the hunt. So he's the one who puts out, you know, the chicken on a hook for these alligators overnight. And he's the one who drives the boat with all these preachers uh, there to go kill an alligator. And he's the one who, when we get up to the, to the place where the alligator's on a hook, he tells us, okay, you're going to grab that rope and you're going to pull that gator in. So I grab the rope and I pull that gator in and I start to pull the gator. And guess what? The gator starts to pull me. And you realize it's fighting you back. It doesn't want to be caught. So you pull, pull, pull. I remember pulling on that alligator and I pulled and it stopped. And I'm pulling and I can't pull anymore. And then it starts pulling me. And it's, it, doesn't want, it doesn't want me in its life. It's glaring. It's growling. It's pulling back. And then I give it a mighty pull and it turns and goes the other direction. And, and that rope just comes straight through my hands. I mean, I'm gripping it with everything I've got. And it just, it's like rope burn all in my hands as that gator is taken off until Gator Bob reaches around me with his big meat hand and puts his hand on my hand and he grips that rope and all of a sudden it's like, and then Gator Bob, you know, I feel like it's my muscles pulling this thing in. It's really Gator Bob right here just surrounding me and pulling that gator in. And then as it gets close to the boat, he's telling me how to kill it and all this kind of stuff. And there's right there with his tobacco breath in my face and, and all this stuff, right? Here's the point. I am going somewhere with this, I promise. Here's the point. If I had been told to go hunt that gator on my own, I'd be eaten. But I had someone who was with me. I had someone who, when I didn't have the strength, His strength took over. His counsel, his guidance guided me through. And that's what happens when we're on the marriage journey and the parenting journey and the the work journey is that God's own dear presence, when we feel like things are getting out of hand, God is there to just take over and give us his strength when we don't have the strength and his guidance when we don't have the knowledge and his presence when we feel like we're about to be gobbled up by the gator kids. Can I get a witness? That's the good news. God's grace for the journey. And so we have to be awfully dependent upon him. Amen? Awfully dependent on him. If we're going to make it in our marriages, in our parenting, in our our work, we've got to be dependent on him. And so here's how we want to finish this morning is giving you an opportunity in humility just to seek God's grace for this journey of Christ-centered relationships. We can't do it in our own strength. We can't do it in our own wisdom. We need God to give us his presence, to cheer and to guide. So I wanna give you a moment to do something that you'll not get this invitation all week long, but you have it right now to take a moment to pause and to pray and to pray together with your spouse or with your kids or your grandkids, your family. If you want somebody to pray for you, there are gonna be pastors and ministers here at the front who would love to pray for you. You don't have to give any details. You can just say, hey, pray for us. And a pastor or minister will pray for you. Or you want to just grab your spouse and say, hey, let's, we need to hit the reset button. 
We need to start over in, in the home. You can just grab your spouse, come and kneel here and pray. Get your family, come and pray with them and ask for God's blessing on your home. Ask God to give you what you need to have a Christ-centered life with that closest circle of relationships that he's entrusted to you. Let's stand together and if God leads you, you come and kneel and pray. Turn around. 
shall call with trumpet sound. Oh, may I then in Him be found, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless stand before the Lord. Amen. Would you bow with me? Jesus, we just say, be the center of our lives. Jesus, be the center of our marriages. Jesus, be the center in our parenting. And Jesus, be the center of your church. Help us to do everything in word and deed for your name and your fame and for your glory. We pray in your name. Amen.